<laughs> he yes. hasn't done it yet. Oh, yes, I did. Right, Andreas, say what you were going to say. No, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> we're not recording, Andreas. Go ahead, whatever you're going to say. <laughs> uh, okay, welcome to Practical Shooting After Dark. I am your host, Joel. With me on deck tonight, we have a man that needs no introduction, Wanchit Kim. Hi. Matt Hopkins. Hello. And Andreas Yankopoulos. How did I do? Perfectly. Hello, Good. everyone. Glad to have you back, my man. Uh, yes. Okay. You guys know the deal. A topic, show and tell, something that makes you angry. <laughs> Whatever. Not that How much time you got? Angry, obviously. Joel's going to say something angry. Crazy. Uh, who wants to go first? Or you can make me go first if you want, since I think I normally pick on you guys. It's up to you. Yeah, that sounds good to me. You're fired up, man. I don't want to stand right. in the way. Yeah, a lot of rage. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about a question that we get asked a lot. We, we talk, I mean, here in a training group about having a gun that fits your hand, but what does that really mean? I mean, what does that look like? You don't measure it by glove size. Or I'm not going to get out a tape measure and like, oh, my fingers are this long and my palms this size. That means you buy a Shadow 2 or whatever. So, I mean, how do you know what gun fits your hand if the gun you have even fits your hand? And honestly, there isn't a universal answer. But uh, I want to talk about some questions I think you should ask yourself that would hopefully lead you to the right answer. Um, the first one is, does the gun feel comfortable in my hands? Because you can just tell if the gun's way oversized or way undersized or you can't get to some controls or, you know, a beaver tail bites into your hand or something. If it's just like not comfortable, you don't like it, probably not the gun for you. Uh, another question that I always ask myself is, do I feel like my support hand is actually able to help me control recoil? Sometimes you get a gun, uh, a gun that's the grips, like, let's say it's really small. And when I go to put my support hand on the gun, I feel like I don't have any room in here. And I feel like Man, I just like I can't hang on to the gun or anytime I shoot, I feel like they're separating. So, I mean, maybe you could address that with grips or skateboard tape or something. But that's something really to be aware of. Also, um, another thing is, am I like experiencing any discomfort or pain? You know, oh, when I shoot, I really feel my forearm really hurts because of maybe the angle that you have to grip the gun or something like that. Um, and then kind of the last one is just, am I able to access the controls easily? Because obviously, if you can't get to the magazine release, uh, to save your life and you're, you know, you're using your support hand thumb to hit the magazine release or something goofy, then that's probably not the gun for you either. So I want to kind of talk about a process, I guess, I went through with guns. I started shooting Glocks a bit uh, at an off season. I get a lot of questions about them. So I'll kind of talk about my Glocks, but honestly, the guns don't really matter. Uh, just kind of think about maybe how it applies to what, what you're shooting. So um, I've got a, just a, a Glock Gen 4, 17, nothing special. Uh, the gun was like, it didn't have any grip tape on it. It was really slippery. I borrowed my friend's gun. I'm like, oh man, this has grip tape on it. I like it. Uh, I feel like I can really get a better purchase. Okay. It's got back straps on it. I feel like I have more room for my support hands. So I'm like, yes, this is the gun for me, you know? And then I worked with it some, and then it turned out, hey, maybe the back straps, like for me, the back straps were too long and I was having problems hitting the mag release. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to take a back strap off. Let's see, does that fix? Maybe I take two off. Maybe it's just the frame. You know, something like that. Um, I got this 34 recently without the same deal, without grip tape. It's too slippery. Uh, I start training with it. The area on the top of the back strap, it's like, hey, man, that's got, that's too sharp. That, that skateboard tape that's chewing in my hand, I don't want that. So, like, I take that off. So maybe you're experimenting with, uh, you know, grips or 
Um, I've got a Tanfolio. I don't like guns everywhere. But a gun like a metal gun, like a Tanfolio or a CZ, where you've got removable grip panels, you know, you've got so many different options to pick one that fits your hands. So I think about any gun that we use for competition, I think about all the relevant guns, have like a back strap of some type or grip panels or something you can interchange. So, I mean, like pick up those guns, try the different sizes that you have, and then just find one that feels, you know, natural in your hand. When you shoot it, does your support hand do something? Can you reach the controls? Can I hit the slide release? You know, those kind of things. So again, it's not a one size fits all, and I don't have an answer to measure, you know, how your what size hands you are, or what guns you should have, but uh, I think it's some things to think about. What do you guys have to say? I have a rule of thumb on uh, Ooh, my tell answer. Me. Yeah, so I uh, not really a lot of the high level competition shooter ask me this, but a lot of the actually non competitive shooters ask me this, like, hey, how do I um, get a right size grip? So how I tell them is if you just rest your hand on a table and completely relax, your fingers are going to curl naturally. And then just look at how relaxed you feel with that curl angle. And mm -hmm. I tell them you want to get a gun that uh, keeps you that angle, near that angle. So if you have to like curl a lot more than that, so small gun, uh, if you have to curl your fingers a lot and that relaxed uh, hand angle breaks, then it's going to typically add more tension. If you have to open up a lot more than that, it's going to also add tension. It's going to ha have a hard time uh, pulling the trigger straight kind of thing too. So I usually tell them, hey, just rest, the, rest your hand on the table, completely relaxed, look at your hand angle, and then try to get near size grip. Yeah, Do you mean like, like how far your fingers curl under your palm? Is that what you mean when you're laying your hand flat? Yeah, when when you just rest it on a table, completely mm -hmm. relaxed, your yeah. fingers naturally curl. Sure. And that's you, that's your neutral you position. Say your thumbs up when you're doing that, Kim. Because I was thinking your thumb is to the left or right. You're thinking when your thumb is pointed towards the sky, right? Oh, actually, for this, it's less than the thumb. It's actually the grip front to back width. Yeah, but the orientation of your hand. Your thumb is up, not yes. to the side. Exactly, yes. Yeah. If you rest it on the bottom of your palm on a table, like you're holding a cup, for example, that angle. So it's like this. Yes. You're you see with, yeah. that natural, relaxed hand position or angle. And you want to stay as close as possible to that. So that, that you... Sense. Yes. That will help people to have the strong hand more relaxed when they actually grip the gun. I'm sitting here thinking, man, why didn't I think of that? Kim just makes it so <laughs> easy. My gun to see how they fit. <laughs> Guess what? Those CZs are not the guns for you, Matt. May I suggest a Tanfolio? <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, so, oh, and what? Oh, sorry, Andreas, go ahead. I was going to say, Joel, you were talking about being able to reach the controls easily. So, what do you think about having to flip the gun in order to hit the magazine release? Is that a uh, does that mean the gun's the wrong size, or is that just uh, how things roll? No, that's a good question. Um, I've I've always had to flip the gun a little bit, and I think for I think for most people for production guns that don't have an extended uh, release, I think that's really pretty common, and I don't see a problem with that. The problem I had with my Glock was that I got the grip so long that even though when I kind of do the flip to hit the button, the the distance from the front strap to the back strap was so long that I had problems like flipping it in my hand where I still had a good enough purchase. And I could kind of get back to my regular grip, if that makes sense. Kim, what do you think? 
I agree. Um, I personally have to flip on many guns, but when I shoot Tenfolio or CZ, when I shot them, they actually have the extended button models. Mm -hmm. So for any guns, basically has extended button. I don't have to flick or rotate the gun like 1911 also. But there are some guns that you can't put extended one because the grip is maybe a little flat and the button extrudes too much. So when you do a table start, the button will be pressed. So those kind of guns, you can't put it in the in that situation. You just, yeah, rotate the gun when you try to push the button. I have a short thumb, so I have to usually, if it's not extended, always have, I have to rotate it. I've had a lot of problems with extended safeties and weak hand transfers. Bro, I'm not a fan. Uh, a couple friends of mine uh, that have maybe worked on my guns in the past, like, oh man, this this extended mag release is legal. I'm like, yeah, don't put that on my gun. And it's like, why not? It's so cool, man. And then like the holster hits it wrong and the mag drops out or they do a, a mm. table pickup. You know, they smash the gun down, they pick it off the table and they bring the gun up to eye level. And the next thing you know, yeah. they're watching a magazine fall. So I don't like those. I'm very leery of those. But if you have one, like, just make sure your holster doesn't hit it. You know, press down on your gun when it's flat on a table and make sure you don't hit the button. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, so I use the extended mag release on mine and it will not sit flat and not eject the mag. So I just manipulated how I picked the gun up that way. Well, so the sense. gun, the pressure, the gun won't set it off. But if I touch down on it, it'll it'll eject the mag. So I just got to change how I pick the gun up. It's more like a pinch instead of a smash. Mm, makes sense. Um, and then also, like, talking about grip panels, like, I probably went through maybe four different pairs for my Tanfo before I liked, I found one that I liked. So, I mean, I know people have heard me say I really like the palm swell grips from Locke. Like, very strongly. I've got that on all my guns. But... Matt might pick that gun up like, yeah, this is terrible. I absolutely do not want this on my gun. And it's just, yeah, personality or your hands, what you look for, how you grip the gun. That stuff could all change. So, I mean, if you can, try other people's guns at your club or, you know, try them before you buy them, so to speak, if you have the option to try someone else's gun. But unfortunately, it's kind of like holster. Sometimes you end up with a drawer full of stuff that you thought was going to be cool, but it just didn't work. So what what about uh, one last question? So what yeah. what about this is interesting. What about um, as you've gotten better at shooting, has your opinion on what gun fits you well changed? Absolutely. Uh, I used to think thin grips were awesome because I could get more of my hand <laughs> wrapped around the gun, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then we uh, went, I think we all went through that on the SPO one series. Yeah. I'm like, SPO one, dude, yeah, I, I got like the first batch of those things. Like, man, these thin grips are so good. I can I can grip this gun so well. Well, then maturity and experience, I suppose, I found out my support hand really wasn't doing much of anything. Like I was gripping, doing all the work with my support hand. So yeah, then I just discovered, oh, I don't want that. And even with Glocks before, I'd be like, hey, I don't really need the grip tape. I'll just, I'll just grip it hard. And now I chewed them a little bit. Even with Pro Grip, like I shot this 34 a bit before putting grip tape on it. And even with you know, grip enhancer and really biting down hard. Eh, it still moves in my hand a little bit. So, nope, it gets grip tape on it. Yeah, I, I shot thin grips long ago because it's a little bit easier to maneuver around. Mm -hmm. But the problem for me was it's also it's breaking that neutral finger angle or relaxed finger angle for the support hand size too. So my hands are bigger size-ish. So I used to shoot uh, Shadow 1 with uh, the thinner grip as possible at the time. It's like the slick one too. And then I had to grip it really hard. But you know, when I say hard, it's also deeper 
into my finger angle, if that makes sense. I have to curl my fingers longer, I mean, further in. So when I actually relax my hands, it's open up more than if I would grip the thinner grip in the angle of my finger and the palm. So that's adding extra tension to my support hand unnecessarily. I like it. Good. Uh, who else has something interesting? Andreas, you have a show and tell that I'm quite interested in. I don't know what it's going to be. Okay. Let me put you on the spot. I want to hear what you got. Okay, so what I have is... This is what I bring to the range. So I'll, I'll try to describe for people who are on the uh, on the audio. This is what I use for taking videos at the range. It looks like about a eight inch long binder clip with a little tripod and then a phone clamp on it. So you can kind of put your mm -hmm. you can kind of put your phone in here. Okay. And then you can clamp it on to. An upright, for instance, like a target stand. Okay. And put it put it on a target stand. Aim the phone. It also sits upright, and then you can just point the phone at yourself to take video. And you have the ball head, so you can change the angle around. But um, I like doing video of myself when I'm at the range, just so I can analyze it later on, or even on, look at it on the spot. And I don't want to dig around the whole tripod or drag tables around or anything. So this has been really, the, the clamp part has been really handy for, you can just use a target stand and clamp it on. Or since it's the bottom's flat, you can just sit it on a, like a barrel. You can drag a barrel over and, and put it on. Um, or you can, you can, there are a lot of other things at the range you can clamp it on as well. How durable is it? So this thing I originally got, I used to do wedding photography as a side business. And like this is called uh, the base thing is called um, a Justin clamp, like Justin, like the name. So if you just look up Justin clamp and photography, you'll, you'll find out you'll find these things and it's fallen and whatnot. But the original idea is you would put you have this clamp and then you would put a, uh, a flash on it. So you'd use it for remote flash work. And what I realized afterwards was, wait, I can just take the flash cold shoe off. And then this is a, a, a an iPhone clamp. Uh, it's called a glyph glif and it just threads in because it's all quarter inch it's standard quarter inch um threading or quarter inch by 20 threading all these things just stick together but yeah it, it's held up well i've had this thing for a couple of years and it's fallen a couple of times when i've bumped into the barrel or whatever and it's it's doing fine nice what was the, the iphone thing called gif a glyph glif I'll, I'll put a thread up on uh pstg with about it pretty neat so i've actually been trying to figure out how to do this i see a lot of people drag tables or something over and like yeah. pop their phone up on an ammo can or something mm -hmm. so this this makes a ton more sense and looks a lot easier but yeah i said i'll, I'll put a put a thread up on uh, pstg on how to build one of these things or how to just order one dude i like it cool i need one of those also cool kim yes what do you have, have to share some... my man nerdy stuff i don't know if I've, i mean i don't know some some people will like it some people may not we're gonna love uh, it yes oh, we'll okay, like it good. uh so after the tranquilizer queen's gambit show i started thinking a lot <laughs> mathematically <laughs> and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh so uh, a couple of things drove me to think this way and train and try uh so one of them was yeah thinking mathematical and ammo shortage and shooting pcc short stroke gun 
actually gave me a thought of how fast I need to be returning the gun back to the target. So basically, after recoil, yeah, of course, physically, by physics, the gun will recoil upward because of the leverage point. So like a lot of people do differently to return the gun. Uh, commonly, yeah, just bring the gun back down with using your arms. Some people just tense up certain muscles like shoulder muscle to actually fight like fight that recoil, which is not recommended because shoulder tension can affect your transition and all that stuff. So uh, I think some of the audio listeners, uh, people will know that I shot a lot of rounds in doubles, uh, especially in 2018. And at that year, what I did is one of the drill I made at that year was called measurement drill. Uh, people in PSTG will definitely know. And using measurement drill, I was uh, basically predetermining how fast the dot has to come back given the target difficulty. So I have, uh, used, I call that variable return speed. So for example, if I'm shooting five yard target versus 25 yards target, uh, there's really no way I'm going to be shooting 20 splits at 25 because, I mean, it's very risky and likely I'm going to be dropping bad points. So how I treated that year and until this year, um, I was basically shooting every five yards increment distance, open targets, and I would shoot doubles on it and then decide what's most predictable uh, speed to bring the gun back down. So for what I'm saying is, uh, 25 yards, I would just let it recoil, bring the sight back down as as slow as possible in a way. But given that I am shooting, usually my average split at 25 is 40 to 45. And five yards target, average split will be somewhere around 15. Uh, given that split time, I need to return, make sure I return the gun back to the original spot within that time limit, right? So I was changing the speed of the dot returning back to target, um, depends on the difficulty of the target. Uh, however, that took a lot of ammo because I'm shooting at every five yards increments and I'm trying to figure out, hey, how slow can I, or how fast should I return back? So I was, I was basically using that whole split time so 45 split time, I'm, I'm using the whole time to actually clean things up, bring it back down. But then uh, when I start shooting short stroke PCC, uh, the difference between non-short stroke and short stroke was that I'm shooting the same splits. Because of the finger speed, uh, even if it's long stroked, I don't know if that's a thing, I can still shoot 15 splits with it. But visually what I'm seeing was very different. Short stroke gun just cycles so fast, even if I'm shooting same 15 splits, the dot, uh, I see it stable a lot sooner. Uh, long stroke one is not stable. Uh, it's just keep bouncing around the whole time. So I was thinking that first, yeah, next year, I'm not going to have as many rounds as before. I, I may you know, run out and maybe run out. I don't know. Hopefully not. But uh, what if I just unify that uh, return split, return speed? So even if I'm shooting five yards, 15 yards, 25, whatever distance, if I return at the same speed and just practice one set speed of the return, then yes, I don't have to shoot every five increment. That's one thing. And then, uh, for example, if I am returning, uh, so 
this is a little bit nerdy mathematics stuff. Uh, usually human response speed for what you see and actually do an action is about 15th of a second. So, of course, there are times where we split by as fast as we pull the trigger, like five yards. But 25 yards, you don't want to do that. You want to confirm the site is stable under the target, right? <clears throat> so in that kind of case, there is the response time involved in it, which is around 15th of a second. In that case, I can just guesstimate, hey, I'm shooting 45 splits, and usually I'm taking my time to return the gun. So if it's 45 splits, I am returning the gun at around 0.3 seconds, somewhere around it. And then I'm visually confirming the dot stabilized and then pulling the trigger. That adds another 15th of a second. Okay, so let me, mm -hmm. let me, add, let me add a question. So yes. what you're talking about, uh, for people that might not be following, is reactive and predictive shooting. Is that correct? Would yes. that be an easy way? I don't want to put words in your mouth. But uh, predictive, you know the outcome, you match the trigger, and you can predict where the bullets are going to go compared to reactive. It's like the adding that extra 15th maybe, but you see what the dot, which you want, you press the trigger, dot goes up, dot returns, and then you you visually, you double check, like you're confirming, you get that, you're reacting to the sight picture coming back down. Is that, yes. is that a fair way to say it? Very good way to put it, yes. Okay, sorry. Uh, to me, yes. Uh, so to me, proactive is more of shooting with physical speed, uh, physical trigger speed. So you're setting, predetermining how fast you're going to split with the physical speed. And the reactive shooting is visually confirming things and then shooting it. So that's how I think. Yes. So in terms of that, if I just make sure my return speed is at 0.2 seconds, uh, what will be the results? So that means uh, I am setting one speed of the return of the dot at 0.2 seconds. So basically the dot goes up, dot comes back down, and that takes 0.2 seconds, no matter what the distance is. And then I actually shot five, dis uh, five yards distance increment. So where before, when I'm shooting five yards distance, I'm shooting, like I said, 15th of a second split. But uh, I am making sure I'm returning within 15th of a second. However, if I fix my return speed at 0.2 second, then when I shoot 15th of a second split, yes, the, the gun is not quite returned yet, right? Mm -hmm. The gun's still returning. So the second shot in theory has to be higher than the original spot. Uh, but the thing is, when I shoot measurement drill at five yards, uh, the part one of measurement drill where you shoot one shot uh, into dead center and then do not return anything, and shoulders relax and everything, and just shoot the second shot wherever the gun stopped. And that distance from the original shot and the second shot that was not returned is about four inches for me. But when I do that, of course, I'm still gripping, I'm still locking the wrists, but just relaxing my shoulder, not returning, not pushing the gun down at all. So that's four inches. Uh, if I shoot that without return at five yards, it's still in the A zone because A zone is 11 inches long. Mm -hmm. So given that the first shot was the center, uh, if I even if I don't quite return, even when I'm shooting 15th of a second split, and the speed of the return was for 0.2 second, it shouldn't be at the dead center for the second shot, but it's still around within that two-inch zone group. So one of the rule of thumb I've been giving people uh, for recoil management is that you should, at a higher level, you should be able to shoot two-inch group at five yards in doubles drill 
under 0.2 second splits. Mm -hmm. So now, even if I don't quite return all the way, uh, fixed return split at 24, uh, 20 splits, it's still two inch group. Uh, just that second shot is slightly higher than the original spot. And then yeah. up to further distances, when I go, for example, 25 yards, where let's say I was returning at 0.3 seconds, but now I'm returning 0.2 seconds. Then it's kind of like the short stroke version where the dot comes back faster and now have a little more room to confirm a little more. Hmm. So that's the theory. Uh, the reason why I wanted to do this though, another reason was this. Uh, it, this is actually uh, driven by Matt Hopkins, uh, what you taught at the summit, PSTG summit. What Matt did in his uh, presentation was uh, he, he would set up like a 90 degree transition situation and he would put a orange cone somewhere along like 45, 30 degree line, something like that. And then what Matt said is, hey, uh, you, when you transition to the next target 90 degrees, when the gun passed that cone, you immediately start down and then you're going to precisely stop on the next target and then shoot it. So when I tried that more, uh, at that point, I was transitioning in a way I am uh, 100, moving the gun 100% speed to the next target, but 100% controllable speed. So I can quite stop it where I want. However, visually what I'm seeing is the dot was coming in super fast. But when Matt told me to do that, the dot was coming in slightly slower, but a lot more predictable. So I can uh, almost time the shot better. So I'm waiting the dot to touch then I was able to time it and then get a better accuracy. However, in, in terms of the timer, the time difference was very not noticeable because we're talking about gun going to the next target at 100% control speed versus maybe 90% speed control speed where Matt was trying to make us do that 90%. I'm just giving a random number. So in terms of comfort and predictability, it was much better when the dot was coming in just a hair slower so I can time it better. And then another benefit for uh, the recoil stuff I was talking about. So if I am shooting 15th of a second split uh, and I'm trying to return within the time limit or as fast as possible versus if I try to keep that dot returning within 0.2 second limit but shooting 15th of a second, the dot was coming back in a more predictable speed in a way. So I was able to time it better in a case where I'm shooting 15 yards. So I was able to get even better grouping this way uh, at, at 15 yards because the dot is coming more predictable way than if it's coming back as fast as humanly possible speed, like dot jumps around crazy. Uh, even if I call the shot, it may not be there. Because the split I'm shooting, like if, for example, 0.2 second split, 0.2 something, mm -hmm. usually the gun may not be completely stabilized at sometimes. So just having the dot more predictable speed and also fixed return speed actually got me better results and better control and even better shot calling as well. So there was a lot of benefits. And I think this way uh, I'm going to be spending less amount of uh, rounds on doubles too. So I can work on other areas with the same ammo. Kim, you're a smart dude. Uh, so I want to I want to talk about a few things uh, that Kim mentioned to maybe add a little bit of explanation. Uh, I want to talk about measurement drill. 
which Kim designed. It's on Training Group, which is quite brilliant. And I uh, I steal this and use this in class all the time. I'm not going to lie. So uh, what Kim's saying is, so if you, you hold the gun properly, you aim it at like the letter, the perforated letter A maybe on your target, you shoot, and then you don't return the gun. You don't push it back down. You grip the gun properly, and wherever it, it, it raises to in recoil, you then press the trigger straight and you fire a shot wherever the gun recoiled to. And like what Kim says, this is, you know, whatever, three, four inches, somewhere in there, whatever. Uh, the thing to key in on, though, is when you're looking at the target, that small little, whatever that distance is, like holding the gun in your hand, then I think, how much, how much muscle do I have to put on the gun to move it that much? And that's when the, the light bulb comes off that I've seen in people's, or comes on in people's, when they're in class, they're like, oh, crap. Like, I don't have to push down the gun really hard to return it because... I mean, like, man, if I just look at the spot, like, and I just barely, like, barely even lean on the gun, it'll just go right back to, uh, to where you want it to go to shoot. So, anyway, is that a fair way to describe measurement drill? Yes, that's just a part one of measurement drill. There's two yes. different strings, yes. Uh, but one last benefit of this, so basically at five yards, having the second shot slightly higher, I think it's actually a good benefit, especially for shooters who has the second shot going lower. Because in USPSA, how many times do you see partial target on top of the target? We always, almost always has the partial target on the bottom of the target. Mm -hmm. So if your shot goes lower, you're, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And if your second shot goes like an inch or two slightly higher when you shoot like 15 splits, in theory, you can shoot a lot further distance at the same split speed while maintaining safer shots, even on the partial target where the partial's on the bottom side of the target. You're a smart guy, Kim. So when you. You were, when you were talking about shooting at 25 yards, that mm -hmm. you're getting like 0.45 splits. Yeah. When you were shooting kind of with your old approach, returning a gun slower, mm -hmm. was the dot not coming down to the aiming point for... 0.45 seconds because usually oh. like when, I, when i'm shooting at 25 yards the like the, the the sight jumps and then it's back back on the target within like 0.2 ish seconds and then the time for me is that i'm cleaning up the sight picture that it's not coming down precisely enough to make the shot so i need to mm -hmm. micro steer the the front sight back into place as i pull the trigger yes i believe a lot of people actually already do the fixed speed of the return uh, okay. a lot of people don't too so this may not be the perfect example for people who already have the fixed speed but one one more benefit is if, even if you're doing that fixed return split speed so you're seeing your site back down fast every single time no matter the distance uh, in that case the case may be you actually have a lower shots i mean of course there are, there are many people don't have lower shots because a lot of people, uh, one good example I gave somebody is this. If I'm trying to punch you in the face, people are trying to gonna punch you back as hard as possible. Recoil mm -hmm. is a similar way. So people are trying to return that or fight the recoil force as hard as they can. So like gripping more than necessary can come in that way or pushing the gun down or tensing up the shoulder can come in that way. So people like that is going to be very helpful and challenging to actually get that second shot slightly higher because you're 
returning the gun slower pace or or more controlled pace. Okay. And one more benefit can be this: if what I personally experienced is when I'm shooting a that variable return speed, at times I might tense up my muscles just a little bit more on a closer shot. And relax more on the furthest shot. So there is definitely tension change uh, very often. I'm not trying to do that, but inevitably. And just working on one aspect or one fixed sp uh, return speed, just working on one, no matter what the distance is, it can unify the tension for your shooting, no matter what the distance is. So there is that benefit too. Makes sense. Guys. I like it. Uh, okay, it's Matt's turn. Matt always says, hey, what do I have for a topic? What should I use for yeah, a topic? Here is your topic. Uh, I'm going to ask Matt a few questions that normally uh, in the past USPSA has asked uh, people campaigning for area directors, just because I'm, I'm curious what Matt's read on these are. Matt's already, like I've shown Matt the question, so I'm not going to ask him anything crazy. Uh, but I think it's interesting to give him some talking points because uh, like, I'm curious what his answers will be. Uh, so the first one I'm going to put to you, Matt, why do you desire to serve or continue to serve, oh, it's the way the USPSA words it, on the board of directors? So I think it's an interesting question and probably the most important and first one you should answer, like if you're going to start running, you know, right? Like, why do you want to do it? Like, what's mm -hmm. the end game, right? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is offer a different perspective so i i think i have a lot of experience in the sport shot a lot competed at a high level been involved with a local level like setting up a match like i have i have the experience from like the whole gambit like i i can't and also on like the sponsorship side and everything too like i know that input and like what that is like working for a manufacturer and everything like that so i think i offer a lot of different and a wide perspective on the sport and obviously and to the the reason for this is like i'm not super happy with how uspsa is being run right now like there's some decisions that are being made that i'm not super happy with and i don't think are for the best of the sport so i want to get in there be a vote and change that i like that uh i guess also just as a side, I mean obviously i'm friends with matt but uh Competitive equity is an important uh, issue to me, and having someone that is competing at a high level and relevant in the standings, um, I think brings a lot also, I mean, honestly, because you look at them, like, it has to be fair for everyone. That's that's uh, a good way to earn my vote. Uh, okay, <laughs> next question. Uh, what do you believe to be the core responsibilities of an area director? I mean, so if you look at this question and, like, for the bylaws, it's literally like vote at board meetings and run the area match. Mm -hmm. That's like the two things that stand mm -hmm. out. So, I mean, area match, it, there's a couple different ways you can do that. You can like do it where you run the match and do like match director, or you can farm it out to a local club. Uh, I haven't decided how I'm going to do that yet once I get elected. Um, I'm just throwing that back and forth. I got a, I got a whole another year to figure that out too at this point. So I've talked to some bigger uh, bigger clubs that could handle it. So like farming it off of them or getting the help like locally, like 
it's able to be done. I'm not super worried about that. And then obviously the vote on the board, like vote for all the different topics that come up. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. what what's the biggest ones? Like rule changes, all the all the stuff that you see in the like in the meeting minutes and the stuff that you don't see. Also, I guess right that they hide. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, good. Okay, uh, last question I will grill you with. Okay. Prior to announcing your candidacy, what have you done to help grow the organization? All right, so... Water. Water on the base. That's probably my biggest contribution and thing I'll be, I'll be oh. remembered for. And walk off the back of the stage. Yeah, that was the other stage. one. Yeah. People are going to swap that yeah. stuff right now. I need to actually start bringing that back up. <laughs> No, I think like the biggest thing is like running the local USPSA match at Mill Creek. So I was on the board at Mill Creek and ran like the match and was all the way from like assistant match director to match director to president of a local club for five years. Then I took like a four or five year break and now I'm back on the board and running the local matches there. So setting up local matches, proofing the stages, helping people design stages like just doing that, like that's probably my biggest, and I'm going to continue doing that no matter what. Well, I can't beat you up with any of those answers you gave. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, do you guys have any follow up questions for Matt? If not, I've got a couple listener questions. It's okay if you don't want to beat him up. All right, no cross. Well, Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I, I personally think. Uh, for me, I, I usually, in USPSA, I think uh, as a competitor first. But then the thing the most uh, interests me, uh, if I were to vote for you, because I'm not Area 3 resident, I don't think I can vote. But uh, the thing is, you have a lot of international match experience. Like, people may think, of what, what does matter? Um, but I really think every region um, I went to, like internationally, in Canada, or European countries, uh, every region has different aspects, and there are thing, things that's done differently. Uh, some things are better, I, in my opinion, and some things are not. And I think Matt experienced a lot of good things, like, for example, how can we make a national level match run through more fluently, could be one thing, or the politics behind it, the member management, the money management of the organization, each region. I, I think that's what interest, interests the most To if I were to vote you as a Area 3 resident. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Well, yes. Kim, you can come live at my house long enough for the voting. and then All you, you got to do is change our address. address. Yeah, change your address. <laughs> we just change our address every two years, and then we'll get to vote on the area directors for that. <laughs> Sounds legit. Okay. Sounds- Guys, I got an area, or a listener question for you. This is a doozy. Well, that's not too bad. Is a training diary important? And if so, how detailed should it be? Uh, every drill time, splits recorded, dry fire records. You know, he wants to know, like, is it productive? And how detailed should it be? I guess, do you guys keep uh, a training diary? Well, I did. I, I, yeah, I did for a while, but didn't flip back through it as much as I thought that I would. So now more, I just kind of keep a list of some training points, like two or three things I'm trying to focus on at any given time. Mm -hmm. 
and just try to to make sure that I'm hitting those during my during my training. For me, uh, I actually had a uh, blog ish. It was a forum. So uh, in the forum, I was creating my own thread. So there was a diary for about two years, the first two years. And then at that point, most of my focus was actually technique development. Right now is yeah, more than that, uh, less of a technique development than more of a performance related. So when I was heavily on um, technique development, for example, like how do I reload, where do I look at it, like where my thumb goes kind of thing. So the first two years, I actually had my uh, range diary, but it's more of, it's nothing like, hey, this was my time, none of that stuff. Uh, I actually first started with that, but then I quickly realized that doesn't mean much to me. Uh, and then I quickly evolved my diary into a couple color-coded couple sentences. So I have different colors. So red one was like, the revelation for technique. So for example, hey, I need to place the base pad on my palm, not on my fingers kind of things. So I need to get a good grip, but more detail. What I actually did to make things more consistent or faster. So it was process-driven diary than actual performance journal. So none of the time, none of the off account kind of thing. All I write was, hey, I needed to do this to make this happen. In the draw, I had to have my index finger on the trigger guardish area, whatever, index points. And then uh, I actually went back to it very often whenever I made mistake. Uh, and then the more I did, I my memory attention level, retention level went up. So I didn't have to write stuff down anymore at, at a certain point. So after two years, I just stopped doing that. But on my phone, I always have like a learning revelation stuff. Uh, so for example, I trained with this person like Ben, and then uh, he commented on this, so I need to work on this. So in a way, that's a homework. And another one is at when I went to the match, the first half went great, second half, my vision fell down, so I need to work on that kind of thing, could be one of them. And another thing is like, uh, for example, like, the confirmation drill kind of thing, it didn't actually came up in my mind just one day. Sorry, confirmation drill is one uh, a drill I made. Uh, it's basically working on aiming skin kind of thing. And then uh, there's three different types of confirmation in the drill. It didn't just show up in one day, all of them. Uh, like the thought started when I was actually going at night, about to fall asleep. I, I pray every night before I fall asleep. And then just thought of working on different aiming style came up in my mind and then I just write it down. And then for a week, like uh, I'm thinking about that in more detail and then write stuff more and more on it. So it's not, nothing really is about performance per se. Yeah. Yeah. What I keep now is more what you're describing where you mm -hmm. write down, like if something interesting happens at the range that I write it down or if I'm in a class, I'll, something interesting gets said, I'll, I'll write it down, or particular takeaways from a match that I need to work on, I'll write that down. Yeah. And then I'll periodically flip through and kind of make sure, have I been have I been tracking these things in my, in my training? Matt, how about you? 
I think that's good. So I literally only wrote down what drills I was working on and the round count on the drills this year. I haven't done a a journal or a diary or anything like that. So this is the first year I've done it. I don't think it offered me anything. I just wanted to see like what my round count was just because I was curious because I have an estimate. Like that's what everybody asks, right? Mm-hmm. But like having a hard, like solid number that like is accurate within the like really, like really accurate. So I just wanted to see, it was just like, I didn't use it. It didn't affect what I was doing or how much I was shooting. I was literally just an information thing that I could reference at the end of the year. Gotcha. Um, I don't keep a journal at all. Uh, I don't think I ever really have. Um, I think one of the important parts about why it's a good idea for some people to do a journal, it kind of depends on how you tick, but it it's important because it makes you think about what really happened. I think it's the key part, I, my thoughts, regardless if you ever read it again or not, that you have to really analyze what you did at the range and you're uh, articulating all your thoughts so you're really analyzing what's going on, which I think is a really good thing to do. And my way I do that is just on the way home from the range, I'll be playing through everything that happened and thinking about anything that, man, I, that was really pathetic. That should have been better or this is really strong or just kind of analyzing what happened and thinking about the future. And I think that's a lot of what a journal is, is, again, explaining, you know, like writing down all your thoughts in detail. And that helps you think about what you've been doing and that helps you, you know, plan for the future, even if. It's been my experience. I've talked to people that they've never even reread it, but the fact that they had to stop, they had to take the time, and they had to really analyze everything that happened was really where they got the gain from. So, I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think it kind of kind of depends on what makes you tick, so to speak. Yeah, I think for matches, if you have some kind of process to go back through the match and figure out where where's your biggest room for improvement, then. I think as long as you have that process and maybe how to turn that into something actionable to do in training, I think you're in good shape. Yeah. Unless you're going to forget stuff. If you're at the match, like I had that stage was a dumpster fire. What was it? Was it far shooting? Was it close shooting? I, I don't, it was probably okay. I don't know. You know, if you're one of those, but if you're like, nope, I remember it was stage nine. There was those far partials at 20 yards. I had a really tough time. I definitely need to work on partials. And that's kind of the same thing as writing it down. So I think it kind of depends on your ability to recall what happened and then, you know, draw conclusions from your results you had, whether it was good or bad needs to get better is improving what you're doing is working, that kind of thing. So yeah, assessing, assessing where your training's been and then where you're going. Yeah. I try to come up with my assessment of the different, of the stages and what happened. And then I'll pull up the scores and see how I shot against my pals on those stages and see if that if that changes my thoughts on how things went like sometimes i think well that stage wasn't very good and then it ends up being like i got a stage win like well okay maybe it was better than i expected Uh but then you got to look at like did your pals have a dumpster fire did they shoot okay and yeah i think documentation is especially more beneficial to people who's training irregularly or training very little uh like one live fire a week kind of a situation or you have to go uh, somewhere abroad and come back in like two, three weeks, no training, then I think for the retention purposes, I think it's a very good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Kim, you're so smart. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, if you're likely to forget or if there's a, a duration between training, that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and guys, I personally oh, do a lot more video documentation than writing documentation. 
so yeah, I video every match I shoot, and very often I shoot uh, in training, and I video myself uh, doing certain things too. Yeah. Well, guys, I'm not sure. Was this a bang up podcast? I think it was okay. That yeah, was yeah, very good. Was good. Yeah. All right, verdicts in. It was a bang up podcast. Uh, listeners, if you have a question you'd like to answer to, go to my website. It's bensteger.com. <laughs> Send me your question. I'd love to hear from you. <laughs>